and welcome everyone to another episode of the Regeneration Podcast. Uh, I'm here with my good friend, as always, Michael Martin, and we'll introduce our guest momentarily. Michael Martin, our name, Regeneration. You know where it has a prominent role? Let me guess. Tell me. In William Blake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was rereading, kind of related to this interview, I was rereading, it's my third book. <clears throat> And I heard that Harold Bloom tried to read it hundreds of times, but uh, uh, Northrop Frye and William Blake. And uh, William Blake saw loss as his prophetic figure uh, in his poetry as the shaper of regeneration. So I think we've taken a, a good name for our podcast. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we have... Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, go, please. But, but that's not where I got the title from, as much as I am a, 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 a William Blake fanboy. Tell me more. I got the title from uh, Henry Vaughn the metaphysical poet, <clears throat> the first poem of his collection, Silex Sintillans, is indeed entitled Regeneration. Oh, wow. And that his, his entire project, you know, which is very connected to Christian hermeticism, is grounded in the idea of the regeneration of man, of society, and of the church, yeah. and of nature. Your PhD, you've been barking up this tree for a long time. <laughs> Yeah. Barking is the right word. <laughs> when he so, wasn't playing. What's that, David? When he wasn't playing that banjo, I can see in the background. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He's a professional musician. You know, so you just heard the voice of our guest today, uh, David Cayley. David Cayley has worked and we'll have him tell us more about himself. But he's his major life's body of work was at the CBC, a CBC program called Ideas. And I encourage everybody, we'll get his website address many times, davidkaylee.com. Um, we're going to be talking about his whole body of work. David Cayley, I'm going to say later that he's kind of the Wendell Berry of Canada, but he also can be compared in Canada, I believe, to something like a Ken Burns. But let me make a distinction there. Ken Burns, I see, is kind of a Whig historian, but David Cayley, in doing seminal, seminal interviews about and with people like Rene Girard about uh, David Cayley, a whole monumental series on science. And uh, people know him now uh, mostly through his uh, recent biography, uh, Ivan Illich, an intellectual, an intellectual biography. Uh, he's the opposite of a Whig historian. He's, some of your thought is uh, overtly anarchistic. Do you ever see it that way? And again, welcome, David Cayley. Thank you. I wonder if all your listeners know what the CBC is. Say it. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Okay, yeah. Here you go. Here's here's some trivia. So I, I re-listened to your, your series on William Blake recently. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the middle of one of the inter interviews with Kathleen Ray, and I said, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Because I'm from Detroit, and we get the CBC. Yes. Detroit, or at least we yeah. used to in Detroit. Yeah. So... So I was very plugged into Canadian television. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard it before. Yeah. Okay, when, it, when it came out long ago. Good. And tell us more about yourself. And I'm going to kind of hit a tagline of William Blake. And we're, today we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be talking to you, and I'm grateful for this, for two weeks in a row. And I know the listeners are grateful too, because you've interviewed uh, the Seminole people. Uh, you've, you've been following what I would consider as a golden thread that really can help us unlock uh, so many doors. And um, today, if we focus, we know we're gonna hit the names Simone Weil, William Blake, and uh, Rene Girard, and I hope to bring in some others. 
But uh, tell us about yourself. And I want to kind of give us a key, a key line for me from Northrop Fry, who you also interviewed, who's a, an intellectual in his own right that needs to be reckoned with during our time. But uh, tell us more about yourself, David. Well, starting where? Um, <laughs> how, wherever you want to start. Let me put it that's, that way. That's a long story. It's a yeah. long story. <laughs> I'm, very conscious, put your I'm body very conscious of how long it is. Why don't we start with the CBC? Yeah. Um, I, I um, uh, after spending two years living in North Borneo with an organization called the Canadian University Service Overseas, which is somewhat comparable, although it predates your Peace Corps. Hmm. Um, I returned to Toronto uh, all on fire with this you know, opening political world for me, right? And it was then that I discovered Illich as, as the most penetrating critic of the development enterprise of which CUSO, Canadian University Service Overseas, was a part. I mean, I, I had not, I think I was probably seeking adventure more than international development, but, uh -huh. um, but so nevertheless, I, the are, right? I, I, exactly. But I had been precipitated, if you want, into this. And so I discovered Illich and we, we put on teach-ins and the whole critique of development was really the starting point for me. Um, but at, at some point I needed to make a living, uh, a, a little less hand to mouth. And, and so I discovered that the CBC would be a place where I could uh, work and follow the interests that I had while at the same time, you know, gaining a, a thin livelihood. <laughs> So that was a pretty important discovery for me, and that occurred around 1971. So my interests were all political, uh, as in keeping with the time. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what was going on around me. Um, I don't think anyone exactly knew what was going on around mm -hmm. me. It's, it's been important for me with Ivan Illich um, in going back over his work and producing this book you mentioned, which is called Intellectual Journey, um, that he was very much in that moment thinking this, I mean, that you can, when you reread him, you can see that he was absolutely thinking that de-schooling society was a possibility, that it might happen, indeed that it would happen, that it was going to happen. And he was in a certain sense right uh, that something did happen, uh, but it just wasn't what it didn't. It, <laughs> it took the opposite form than the one he had hoped for. As, doubling down. As, as things often do in the world. <clears throat> but I was also in that moment and completely unsure of what it was uh, in the sense that I would be reading Marx, you know, as Marx himself says that you could be a fisher, what is it, a fisherman in the morning and a critic in the afternoon and a shepherd in the evening. Well, I was like that too. I was, I was reading the economic and philosophical manuscripts. I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I was throwing the I Ching, you know, and I, all this somehow allowed me to still think of myself as belonging to the new left in the kind of 
vague Port Huron statement way, right? So all that came to a crisis in the later 70s after I had been fired for exceeding the bounds of politically correct discourse. At the CBC? In Vancouver in 1976. Oh, wow. That's what I thought. I thought, like, I thought you were anarchistic. Uh, I knew you must have been in trouble at some point. So the, <laughs> the precipitating issue, actually, I'm happy to be able to speak about this, uh, was the extradition of Leonard Peltier, the American Indian movement leader who was accused of killing two FBI agents, fled to Canada, uh, was there was an extradition hearing in Vancouver and he was sent back to the United States and has been in prison more or less ever since for two murders, which now everyone knows, including I would suppose Barack Obama and others that he did not commit. Wow. Um, but seeing Peltier uh, who had, you know, in the second wounded knee aftermath, he had been active at the Pine Ridge uh, reservation and it's a long story I won't go into it here it's well told in a movie uh, by Michael Aptet and in a long book by Peter Matheson what's the name uh, of the movie David uh, in the spirit of crazy horse it's Peter Matheson's book the movie I think is called incident at Oglala okay and both cover this question of Leonard Pilcher who I, I have just been I just prayed that Barack Obama would let him out. Mm. I, I can't believe that it didn't come to his attention that he could do it. I'm sure it came. But nobody it. dares, <laughs> nobody dares to defy the FBI, seemingly. No. Uh, yeah. Who suborned perjury to get him there. And I guess we'll leave him there till he dies. Um, but I, seeing him brought shackled into a Vancouver courtroom, uh, in a certain sense, lost my mind. And, and thought, well, this is my this is my moment to speak. Right? This this whole history is present here now. And I I spoke in a very uh, unbridled way and <laughs> lost my job. So so that was the moment to really have to rethink. Well, what was this movement that I identified with? What what had it been? What was it? Right. I can remember one morning at the radio program I worked at in Vancouver, I, I said to an old friend, Stan Persky was his name. I said, Stan, I don't think I'm really a Marxist. And Stan said, of course you're a Marxist. We're all Marxists. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I wasn't a Marxist. Um, so I gradually had to begin to try and think this all through. Yeah. And, and providentially, uh, after a couple of years of independent study and writing, after I got fired, I, I went back to the CBC in Toronto. I discovered ideas as a place where I could make radio programs that really, you know, furthered this inquiry. That was a, a wonderful discovery. It started with a series called Between Two Ages in 1981, which which kind of allowed me to try and open out this new age perspective, if you want to call it that, which mm -hmm. I had probably had all along, at least from the moment when I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a, mm -hmm. as a teenager. 
uh, that a or Carl Jung would be another important source for me mm. of this this new age concept. Or, you know, so so that uh, that that's a, a very sketchy. Summary. Has anybody how, else done this with you? That was fascinating. I mean, and I want you to continue. <clears throat> Has anybody else kind of interviewed you at length on this stuff? Like you were you were one of these people who found themselves in kind of the stream of history and reacted. I would say no. Responded. Okay. I, I, ha, I have not tried to answer these questions before, no. Wow. I feel so fortunate in, that, in all sincerity. Absolutely. So we're going we're gonna to keep on weaving that story, your story, which is going to be really the focus of these, uh, in and out, you know, but you, it was interesting to hear you say that if I'm right, even before that first firing, it kind of goes Illich, that a whole, a whole cascade of events happened to you. And then kind of Illich was a constant companion, you know, literally and figuratively. Is that, is that accurate? That's, that's absolutely true. Um, so all those books of the early seventies that Ivan mm -hmm. wrote, the Deschooling Society, notably tools for conviviality mm -hmm. medical nemesis some others um yeah really f formed me in that kind of decentralist degrowth uh a learning to find enoughness yeah perspective which i which i i never lost and which seemed to me the major uh, stumbling block for the whole left-right way of seeing the world, right? Is that it, yeah. it can't it can't comprehend scale, mm -hmm. but scale is is a crucial issue uh, for us related to technology, obviously, which is the generator of vast scales. Um, but yeah, the scale issue I, I would closely connect to Ivan. Scale is hugely important to me. You know, let's let's play with scale for a while. Uh, so let's we're going to do William Blake, but we're going to bring in um, Leopold Kor on scale too. Okay, yeah. but uh, I, I in reading Northrop Fry and William Blake, um, a regarding scale, as you know, and in this book, it is so central. Northrop Fry's fearful symmetry is that something I've been mining at these articles at Front Porch Republic on you know why we always favor how small we are in the universe when we look at the stars as opposed to how big we are as opposed to like really small things. I've always wondered why do we just slant one equation? I've come out with my own writings to say, slanting it in, in one that we're, you're tiny, you're pond scum, David, you know, and Michael, that's kind of Stephen Hawking. It leads to war, it leads to the end of romantic love and it leads to perpetual adolescence. But I had written all these articles. Uh, I joked with my kids, it was my minor trilogy, but um, I also, picked up only for the first time Fearful Symmetry last year. And again, I think I'm on my third reading, but this is just the center of that book that William Blake thought this notion of just endless space, cold, dead space would lead. And I'm going to quote from uh, Fearful Symmetry, whether it's a direct connection or not. Blake uh, Northrop Fry says, it remains true that the physical world is not good enough for the imagination to accept. And if we do accept it, we are left with our selfhoods, capital S for Blake, right? Our verminous, crawling egos that spend all their time either wrongdoing others or brooding on wrongs done to them. The end of all natural religion, however, well-meaning and good-natured is a corrupt and decadent society rolling downhill to stampeding 
mass hysteria and maniacal warfare. Mm -hmm. This is the historical secession to deism, which William Blake in Jerusalem symbolized as Druidism for mm -hmm. reasons to be explained in due course. But, you know, that, that William Blake saw that this, because we're going to talk about science a lot, David, but that William Blake saw this kind of objectification of the outside world in due course. You know, I said it led to perpetual adolescence. I see warfare. I saw the end of romantic love. But he said, you know, um, essentially mass psychosis and maniacal warfare. Uh, talk about William Blake, you know, how was it through Willich that some part of Willich threw you back to him? And I know, Michael, you know a lot about William Blake, so you're going to jump right in. Well, uh, with me and Blake, um, it was a, a, a child, almost childish love of, of his poems that, that it began with and, and growing up with the songs of innocence and experience. But the prophetic poems, I, I think I was really Kathleen Rain was the important person, even before Nori Fry uh, was reading Kathleen Rain that opened Blake to me. And then obviously fearful symmetry. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm very happy to hear Northrop Fry's name mentioned because he's really uh, pretty much forgotten in in any milieu that I know. Breaks my right? heart. Uh, and I, I don't think that's that. He certainly he was a very important. Yeah. Teacher yeah, North, North, Northrop Fry is is the Canadian Harold Bloom, right? Okay. <laughs> those, are, those are a couple of names that are never to be mentioned in academia. And Harold yeah. Bloom said he read Fearful Symmetry. I honestly think maybe it was in your book on Northrop Fry, David, but said he read it hundreds of times. Yeah, you know, Bloom loved Fry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I mean, Blake was very important to me, but you've more or less said why already. Well, well, and Kathleen Rain, I know in, in a book I have of hers, Golganuza, you know, I think the first line of the first essay in there says, you know, said that William Blake's whole corpus is the only one in history that pitted the real issue as science versus the imagination. Yes. What mm -hmm. was imagination for William Blake? Again, for young people, it means Marvel action heroes, you know, which are more of the same, you know, somebody strong. So a superhero is really strong. So that must be imagination. Or it means like decamping to outer space. You know, this place is boring. So I'm going to go to outer space. And that uses my imagination. Is that a case of the worst being the corruption of the best for William Blake? Or how would you guys describe that? Michael, you're Mike's a, Michael's a poet too. Well, I mean, well, for me, William, it's weird for me, William Blake, I, I went in the opposite direction of most people. I was about 22 years old. I don't think I'd ever read anything by Blake. And a friend of mine gave me a copy of Jerusalem. So I start. I jumped in at the deep end of the pool. <laughs> you went into the deep end, yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I give the, and he gave he literally gave me the end of a golden string, <laughs> you know, and it led me into this world of William Blake and 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 uh, I mean. That's where the title of the journal I edit came from. It's Jesus, the imagination, right? So uh, between, so William Blake led me to Kathleen Rain because there was this used bookstore. This is in about 1985, probably. This used bookstore had the two volume uh, Blake and Tradition by Kathleen Rain mm. up on this shelf. And it was, I don't know, 80 bucks or something. And I didn't have 80 bucks, but I saved up until I had 80 bucks. And I bought that copy and I still have it. Um, oh, beautiful. And uh, 
you know, and Kathleen Rain, like Blake opened up this whole world of what a literary critic could be, you know, which, which was a, a literary criticism of the imagination and not a kind of scientific approach where, you know, we murder to dissect. It's, that's most literary criticism is either trying to prove that, that the author is a fraud you know, is subscribe, you know, what you should see in Marxist or feminist criticism, it's always trying to, 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 to pull away the curtain. But, but Rain wasn't doing that. And she was opening up the poetry to show you the wonders within it, like Coleridge would do. <laughs> and this is what Blake did for me, not just um, in terms of what poetry could be, but in, in terms of what a human existence could be. And I, I really think that it was kind of a time bomb for me that which ex exploded and and it's kind of colored everything I've done ever since. You know, I remember we were talking the other day. I I, um, I hosted a, a conference on the imagination at the at the Waldorf school where I used to teach way back in the day. And uh, it was it was all colored by that. It was I was I was I was in graduate school at the same same time. I was deep into this exploration of the imagination, which was actually my uh, master's thesis was on the imagination. So, um, so so Blake is is tremendously important, and I and I think Mike you pointed out where he called it so long ago. He and Goethe uh, called it so long ago about the you know the the absolute dangers of this what we now call scientism right they they were prophetic voices because they saw where it was headed what it was prophets don't need to be clairvoyant they just need to be logical and i think mm. illich is the same way he can just hear the clear thinking people who see where this is headed yeah yeah you know, and 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 actually <clears throat> pardon me 2022 is where we where they were headed you know, which is uh, the rise of the technocracy and the medical oppression, if you want to say. Yes. Do you want me to carry that on, Mike? I do. I do very much. Well, I, I would say much the same as what Michael just said. I mean, that, that phrase, Jesus, the imagination, I, I can remember, which I think is in Jerusalem. Yes. Uh, just was so arresting for me and and rain and fry obviously were helpful to me in understanding it but it seemed to me it opened it opened the whole question of religion which seems to be such a stumbling block for people right that, that um i don't know if i can say this well but fry once said something to me um which stuck which was that he said that the whole hierarchy which but in, in which people had imagined right gods at the top cascades down um fourfold or like probably could be sixfold or eightfold you know mm -hmm. it's it's fourfold in medieval imagery that Blake, he says, turns it upside down, right? That, that God is at the bottom, within, trying to rebuild regeneration. Um, that it, everything begins 
at the bottom, you know, which is the same imagery you will get later in Freud and Jung and, and the underworld. I mean, this perhaps the most prominent myth. I've read this recently somewhere of the mm. 20th century. Um, but it, it starts in Blake with that rebuilding. But I mean, I, I think it also... Um, it, it, for me, it, it short-circuited or transfigured, perhaps, the whole question of, of religion, which is, you know, which people are, what do you believe? You know, are you an atheist? Aren't you an atheist? Do you believe this? Don't you believe that? These people believe this. Those people believe that. So therefore, this can never be solved or settled. Therefore, let's put it all aside, right? Is, is to think of this, if you think of this as an imaginative enterprise, it, it's put on an entirely different footing. Mm -hmm. And then what's interesting is what people's experience is, right? what, what they have to, to compare, to share, to explore with each other uh, as this rebuilding unfolds. Um, so it, it completely, it shatters the authoritative pre-given universe that it seems as if everyone is constantly trying to rebuild, right? That the, the, la the last two years are another reactionary attempt at rebuilding. Oh, we'll have a biocracy. That'll get everybody back in order. Right, <laughs> or a technocracy, or, what, or whatever yeah, you want to yeah. call, whatever you want to call it. It's a constant attempt to restore order. Oh, we'll follow science, right? Restoring order is always the theme. Restoring the proper place of everything, and and Blake is is about finding out, right? Mm. Uh, it's about yeah, it's about and, finding and out. And there's this plasticity in his conceptual life. You know, if you look at, and, and, and he wasn't afraid to grow. So you look at the William Blake of the marriage of heaven and hell, very different guy from the, from the William Blake of Jerusalem, right? Yeah, really. Where, where he's really worked through his, uh, his interrogation or his concerns about, about uh, establishment Christianity. And he, resolves back on Jesus, the imagination in Jerusalem. And also even the term Jerusalem, what does it mean? It means one thing in Milton and the preface to Milton means a different thing in the book, yeah. the, the, the emanation of the giant Albion. I mean, you think about, you know, I, one of my favorite moments in, in Jerusalem is when loss is, is agonizing and his, and his specter splits away from him. Right. And I, what, I mean, how, profoundly insightful into human psychology William this this guy who never went to school <laughs> yes. William Blake right yeah, yeah. I mean profound profound uh, um, and and so Jerusalem you know, the rebuilding of Jerusalem is no not just you know, it's not just the city it's it's so much more in, in this in, in this epic Jerusalem, you know, which I which I have hesitated to bring before college students because <laughs> I, I don't know if they can handle. It. I teach the songs of innocence and of an experience all the time, but but Jerusalem, you gotta 
got to find a specialized audience. Oh, and you know, there's a, there's a hopeful part because of it, it too. Go go ahead, Michael. It de- yeah. Because it demands it demands of the reader something. Mm-hmm. It yeah. demands engagement, right? You know, it demands that you struggle through what William Blake was struggling through as he came to this. And I, and I think probably the core of that poem is Blake's under, which you see, he comes to not just an understanding, but a realization of what forgiveness is. Right? You know, look at, I'm the, worst, I'm the most sinful of all men, yet I am forgiven. Yeah. That Jesus, the divine imagination, forgives me. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's when I read that, I think it it really changed my perspective about so much. As I forgive you. You forgive me. This is the bread. This is the wine or, the, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's so <clears throat> central that he'll water the whole. He, he believed that that forgiveness piece was the only truly unique part of the gospel. You know, and I, I just know a lot of people want to know, like, you know, uh, we're going to we're not going to talk about Illich now, but, I, you know, my, I have a degree in theology, but I always wondered what makes this thing unique? You know, that's why when Rivers North of the Future came out, David, you know, that the first chapter on Illich is talking about the gospel. Of course, he uses the Good Samaritan. I am going to definitely kick that down the road. But again, at least William Blake offers, you know, David, you're saying, you know, cataclysmic change, uh, short circuited. But if it takes a short circuiting to say, like, you know, what's unique about the gospel, you know, then we we need to be there. You know, I find, too, that um I almost want to hold both of you guys to say, you know, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, we have this cultural notion of imagination, which is we see our son or grandson scribbling a guy with five arms or something. We say, oh, you know, Husserl Fritz has imagination. Um, for Blake, it was something robustly different. And I kind of want to hold maybe both your feet to the fire to say, like, what is he talking about? I mean, we all claim well, to kind of know what it is. Go, David. Yeah. Well. Um, uh, Carl Jung, I think, helps. Okay. Has always was always helpful to me and and inspiring to me. Um, and I, I, I'm often surprised that Jung is so much forgotten in philosophy. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there are you know our intellectual life is divided up into non-communicating school so and maybe and there's a Jungian school of course not much not much uh, if you go even if, in psychology programs there's not much go not ahead like yeah. it was, if, yeah. if you if yeah. you uh, if you look at contemporary European philosophy it's obsessed with Freud and Jung is never mentioned which is hmm. strange for me but Jung talks about objective psyche by which he simply means that the psyche is real Right. And I think that helps with Blake because something is actually going on. Right. Jung is saying he may not be right, but that that God is changing. I mean, that's answer to Job. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of his great late works traces that the actual changing of the god image within the psyche now jung was agnostic about the god who is not in the psyche the is god. that blake's nobo daddy would you say that's an exact equivalent there? well i don't know yeah jung took the stance of a scientist yeah right 
he, he said, I will, I will speak about what I know, what I don't know, I will not pass judgment on. He, he never, you know, whether man made the gods or the gods made man is the question he, he leaves unaddressed. Um, but he insists that these are real changes occurring within real people, right? So, and, and that for me is, is absolutely crucial, right? Because we don't, we don't know what we're seized by, right? I mean, I've, if, if we go back to the current period, the beginning of the pandemic, March, 2020, where I was living, probably the same where you were living, something absolutely astonishing happens, right? Absolutely. A massive change in people's orientation occurs and they don't mostly even notice that it has occurred, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> what's the foundation of modern medical ethics? Nuremberg. No one, no medical procedure is to be posed on an unwilling person absolutely ever again. We've seen that. We'll never return to that. <clears throat> Informed consent is de rigueur, right? right? Public health is about the health of all, right? Masks don't work against respiratory viruses, right? Um, right. What else? You know, it's, it's just all these things are patent. And suddenly they're all changed. Quarantine is for the sick, right? And suddenly within almost weeks, one can yeah, say, absolutely. all those things have been altered. We care about nothing but COVID-19. We'll, we, nothing else matters. We can do unlimited damage to anyone, anywhere, as long as we contain this one enemy, this one plague, this one, what is it exactly? A cold. <laughs> right? And, and I mean, these changes, which you, you can then go and look at the madness of 1914, or you can look at the strange phenomenon of 9-11, where exactly the same, uh, you see exactly the same thing, right? The next, about five minutes after the plane hits the building, everybody seems to know exactly what just occurred. Nobody asks, maybe we're being played here. Maybe mm -hmm. we should take a deep breath. Uh, no, everyone knows. And this, where are these changes occurring? What are we living in? Right? right. So I, I just wanted to add that. Yeah, that's uh, relevant. I think I think Jung has something to say about that, and I think Blake has a lot to say about it. Yeah, yeah. So William Blake, we all agree, central. You know, and again, you just David made made a key point that you're the anti Ken Burns, <laughs> not an establishment figure at no, all. No, not, not <laughs> very, very, very figure. grateful for that. I still wondered how you got back accepted to the CBC. <laughs> again, in a subtle way. All your programs are subversive. They're subversive. I've been drawn to them for so long. Well, uh, the CB, the, since I told you the story of my firing, uh, the yeah. CBC was very honorable uh, in that 
in that matter. Okay. I mean, uh, they were perfectly within their rights sure. to fire me in the sense that I had clearly exceeded uh, boundaries that, that they announced, believed in, and <laughs> and defended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, you know, we don't want you as a host, because I was then hosting this morning program, but you're welcome to freelance. And and I was never impeded in any way after that. I, I contributed freely to the network. I worked at Ideas for another. Yeah. You know, I mentioned how you, you interviewed seminal people. You know, when you did shows about people that weren't living, you had Simone Weil, um, Carl Polanyi, uh, William Blake, and a few others, maybe George Grant. You also did series, you know, that just to show your relevancy too. You know, can you understand this world without doing a series on, well, we talked about science, but childhood. Uh, you did many, many, many on prisons, right? Um, you know, it's, it's again, I just find the whole body of work so totally comprehensive that to get to know you as a person, you know, and my good friend Michael here too, it, it all starts to make sense when you meet this guy. Then you go see that, you know, in this year, he was kind of barking up this tree and in this year, another tree. That's why I just think it's, um, <clears throat> it's the education for our time. And I just can't mince words on that. I can't mince words. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about Rene Girard for a little bit. You know, uh, Michael right. and I come from, you know, some churchy circles in one sense, you know, and uh, Rene Girard, uh, tell me, David, how, you know, you did a series on him. I sense, and I don't know if I can articulate it clearly, I could maybe stammer something out, but I sense that his appropriation is different than what he was actually saying sometimes, especially towards the end of his life. You know, I found his name before I discovered your work. I think it was Shadow Work, to be honest with you, could have been a different book in a footnote to Illich. But it was, of course, Girard's literary studies and what Girard was doing that made Illich so fascinated is showing that triangulation in the great novels of Stendhal. I've been a big fan of Stendhal my whole life and Dostoevsky, that you can see, you know, mimetic desire. You can see somebody wanting something because somebody else wanted it. And uh, talk about science, Illich seemed to glob onto the fact that like the social sciences, when they use that scientific objective Archimedean point viewpoint cannot get at these things. You know, the essentially human element that draws us to great literature like Shakespeare was not there. So that was my entrance point. But uh, tell me about what, you know, where you think people are drawn to him. I know, Michael, that um, you meet a lot of people, especially some of our younger theologians and our younger priests who look at the role of the sacrificial victim. And we just talked with William Blake and Ivan Illich about like what's unique about the gospel. But Girard can almost be an apologetics tool to say like, look at this, the scapegoat, you know, only Christianity under undermine that. So ergo, everybody should be Catholic Christian, you know, and I just wonder if we're missing some nuance in there. So tell us about your, your well, that's a, Yeah, that's a, Long story, and uh, yeah. cut. Please interrupt if I, uh, after I'm still going after 15 minutes. <laughs> but but Gerard probably uh, a lot of what happened to me uh, w- happened through Ivan Illich, and one of the things that happened to me through Ivan Illich was a, a Norwegian criminologist called Nils Christie. I was going to mention his name. A man, a man I loved. Uh, very much. And um, once I got to know Ivan, he, he, he would say, you should go and see John McKnight. You should go and see Nils Christie. And I knew that's exactly what I should do when he said it. And, 
And so <clears throat> through Nils, I was thrown into this world of imprisonment, right? Nils was, at the time I went to see him in Norway in 93, was, was about to publish a book called Crime Control as Industry, which was um, emerging out of his sense, having been part of this move, post-war movement, which dramatically reduced imprisonment uh, in the United States and Canada, as well as in Europe. And suddenly uh, it was just soaring and, and, and Mills perceived as many perceived that this was uh, a useful, perhaps indispensable feature of the type of social of type of society that was emerging, right? Mm. Uh, it was crucial symbolically. It was crucial economically. Uh, crime control as industry, uh, and he he wrote that book, and I I did some programs with him that that people were interested in, and then um, okay. I've got your book here on the expanding prison. Yeah, so that was all. Dills <laughs> got me into that, and you know, in 1995. He called me and said, um, I want you to come to Oslo and help me with, he was going to assemble all the people he knew well and, and to say, how can we present this as a key political emergency of our time, right? Not just, not just a problem that there's too many people in prison, right? This is a key to our entire political economy. How can we present it? And I... I had been knocking on everybody's door and everyone had been saying yes to me. And suddenly Nils was knocking on my door. So I thought, well, you better say yes. Cause I, I didn't really want to go any farther on that road, but I ended up going a lot farther on that road as you just showed the book I did about, about it. And in the course of that, I met a number of people br broadly speaking in the abolitionist wing of criminological opinion who were reading René Girard and, and got me started uh, because obviously the, this scapegoat sure. is, a, is an important thing to understand in that connection. So I began to read Girard and, and um, since we mentioned Northrop Fry, I would, I would put Girard in that class of great readers, right? You, you read Deceit, Desire in the Novel, his first book. Mm -hmm. You're in the presence of a, an amazing reader, a man who can unfold things for, for you in, in a way that is beyond, uh, yeah. I should speak personally, beyond me, right? I, I don't have that you know, same critical, intellectual, spiritual vibrancy or, or discernment, right? It's, it's just patent how the power of this mind to, to see, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. Hmm. Uh, as I think all his first books were. And, and um, so yeah, I was amazed. And, and luckily enough, he was willing to spend a few days with me and, and that produced this five hour series on his thought. Um, uh, but I would say now of, of the many, many, and of the many things I learned from, from Chihau, 
I would say the analysis of how the sacred is made is, is the crucial piece for us now trying to rethink, uh, regenerate. Um, because if you look how this word is used, right? It's, it's, it's constantly used to stop discussion, to say, get your hands off my sacred, right? You may not touch right. my sacred. Uh, it's not the holy, which is an emanation. You can say a presence, a felt field. It's this is sacred and you don't touch it or I'll kill you mm -hmm. or it will kill you or I will kill you on its behalf. <laughs> yeah. what, whichever it is, right? So that, and you know, he, he has his imaginary primal scene, right? Where people all over the, presumably in proto-human groups all over the world are in perpetual conflict as a result of their desires alighting on the same objects. And their imitation of each other gets them into this trouble again and again and again and again and again and again they make the same discovery which is if all turn on one right the one whom they will kill will also save them because the enemy will unify them um and so that that sacrifice is is how the sacred is made um, and I think if we could have a broadly, a broad awareness of that mechanism, right, that that would be a huge part of, of any possible politics for the future. Mm -hmm. um, and it is not to abandon the holy, right? It's not to abandon the hallowed, the whole. It's, it's only to abandon the sacred, right? Which I make in order to keep you away right. from the thing that you may not touch uh, and may not look at, right? And, you know, well, it, the, veil, it's like the veil of the temple was rent in twain. Is, is Central. Crucial. Totally crucial. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very important. Yeah. Blakey well, too. That one. Go, Michael. Yeah. Well, and it's what's what happens when I mean, this is psychoanalyst will tell you this: never, never attack the uh, a person in the midst of a delusion that saying their delusion is is erroneous because they'll turn on you, right? Yeah. Which is what happens in the, in the scapegoat mechanism. Mechanism is that it 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 uh cranks up or generates the the lust for blood and you see it i mean i, I point it out to my students very often it's something uh well you could, you could look at the though i haven't paid attention to it but you can't avoid it the the johnny depp amber heard trial which is kind of <laughs> so you know it's a desire for for blood on a on a societal scale and they and it's sad then it gets satisfied but then it's on to the next, then, then the next, then the, the cycle starts again and it starts to crank up and, and who the victim will be, who knows, but, but there will be a victim. Yes. There will be a victim. 
Um, can I go a little a little bit farther with this? Please. Uh, because I'm, I'm interested in the counsel of others on this point. Um, because I was so involved with Girard and got to know a lot of people in that milieu and in the colloquium on violence and religion, um, the question kept coming up, well, what is Girard got to do with Illich, or what does Illich have to do with Girard? And I've never uh, been able to really fully address that question. Um, Ivan, I know, uh, you'll pardon me calling him Illich and then calling him Ivan. It works. It, it's, um, there's the friend and there's the thinker. Uh -huh. um, he he was had reservations about Girardianism. Let's say he had no reservations. So do about, I. So do I. Yeah. Go he, ahead. He he was very the the idea of mimetic desire coming out of deceit desire in the novel was very um, important to him at the time he was writing books like Shadow Work and Gender and he he felt and the, the work of two. Girardians, uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy and, and uh, uh, oh, what's his co-author? The uh, Oh, I'm forgetting the name. Uh, Paul Dumouchel, yeah. uh, The Hell of Things, L'Enfer des Choses. Well, that was very important to, to Illich. Um, but he he resisted somehow the the system, the idea that this this was a comprehensive explanation. Um, Maybe he, he found it a touch scientific. I'm not sure because he never really explained it. That's but exactly I, my worry is it becomes a system in people's hands, right? They can explain everything. And then I run for the hills, continue. That's right. Okay. Well, yeah. that's that's what I'm wondering. Okay. Yeah. Well, so here's here's one, you know, that there's a guy, Thaddeus Kaczynski, who wrote a chapter in a book by uh, my friend Guido Pepperata on uh, New Directions in Social and Catholic Political Research. But he's getting at some of it too, how... Um, and let me first give a quote from Rene Girard, too. You know, you can foresee the shape of what the Antichrist is going to be in the future, a super victimary machine that will keep on sacrificing in the name of the victim, right? So when this system, you know, Girard saw could be used, you know, so you, you mentioned that your original introduction to Girard was these, you know, prison reform advocates and so forth. And I don't want to, I don't want to make it the right and the left, but since everything is the left, you see some people who have no problems now worshiping, you know, quite often identifying from the left, worshiping the intelligence agencies. We just talked about the FBI, worshiping these huge institutions. Uh, this Thaddeus Kaczynski gets at some of the chaos that can come out of it, too. He says, uh, the politically correct on the left persecute those they deem the persecutors in the name of the persecuted. The war on terror terrorists of the right terrorize though they deem the terrorists in the name of the victims of terror victims by terrorists, such as Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, which they themselves have created. You know, when it becomes when it becomes a system, we lose the ability, kind of like an Alan Turing or, or Kurt Godel thing, we lose the ability to step outside the system and then to see the joke. You know, yeah. I'm struggling to get at it. But, uh, you know, once we reduce the insight, you know, uh, there's a novelist I love who became a friend, a Hungarian. Uh, his name was Stephen Vizinci, but he taught me uh, he lived in Toronto, in fact, with Joni yeah, Mitchell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, uh, 
early on, he was just, he taught me to say like, what we need from the great philosophers are not systems, but insights, right? Insights. And I, I think Gerard is just, he's a insight palooza machine. But once we take him as a system, you get to the point where you could be persecuting people in the name of the victim. Yeah. Um, and I, and I believe a lot of our, you know, thinkers uh, are using Gerard in that way, you know, as an airtight system. So on the right, you have young people saying, Gerard proves that Christianity is unique, ergo be baptized today. And on the left, you get this inadvertent, well, I shouldn't even say inadvertent, but you get these, this persecution coming in the name of the victim, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that he, he was a lovely man, René Girard. Uh -huh. And, and I, I, I never really felt that he thought he had the world by the tail, uh -huh. you know, that he, yeah. that he, he would, I, maybe he, he never said that he wasn't a Girardian, but, but, you know, he, <laughs> I, re, I remember him saying that he was just a kind of critical bulldog, right. Who had got a hold of a good idea and wasn't, I like more, that. wasn't going to get let and go of it. Be, he, couldn't it be true? And that I think, insights, go ahead. Yeah. And I think that is true in a way, right. That he's, yeah. he's, I've often compared him to Fry uh, to, to try and, established a contrast with Illich, who was very much in the moment. And so the subject that he would take up next would depend heavily on who was facing him at that moment or what he sensed in that moment. Whereas I feel like Girard and, and Fry very patiently worked out implications of, of visionary uh, initial visionary experiences mm. uh, and, and patiently and admirably worked out a body of thought based on, on uh, some Very original helpful. kernel of insight. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily either thinking they were making a system, but both attacked for making systems and and uh, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Fry, for sure. the people then later would would say this was a kind of dead hand on literary criticism. It was myth criticism. It was archetypal criticism. It was, you know, it was a system. I don't think it ever was really. Well, that's um, interesting. I mean, I keep keep as we talk. I keep thinking of Blake. I must create my own my own system or be enslaved by another yeah, man's. Right. Yes. Yeah. And but. But he, but he still created his own system, and, yeah. and the point is, is as as you're saying, David, is that that's by 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 following that golden string as Girard did, as as Northrop Frye did, they they figure out the implications. I mean, I think you know, um, you see where 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 things are going, and and it's interesting though. On the other hand. So people who who take these uh, these insights of, of say Fry or Girard or even William Blake, and then try to create a system outside of that system. So you have Girardian critics, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of ham-handed Girardian critics out there, a lot of ham-handed deconstructionists, you know, who just have have adopted their idea of how this system is supposed to work in 
of course, they they deliver academic papers on this on, on a regular basis, but it's it's in, it's a kind of in, uh, a slavery, it's enslavement, and they and, and this is what I think Blake would say, and and I think even Illich would 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 notice that because they do that, and this is my my big beef with literary criticism, being a literary critic, is that. That these mind forged, these are mind forged manacles that that not only get in the way but prevent the critic from seeing what's really there. You know, and in, in my one book, I talk about it as a a kind of can we have an agapeic criticism that that starts in kind of a Goethean phenomenological approach where we're open to things and we're 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 we have we. We listen to the to the phenomena before us. So, so here's an example from Simone Weil, right? You know, the story of one of her mystical experiences came through uh, reading and, and reading, translating, and memorizing George Herbert's poem "Love," where she writes in a letter to a priest that, you know, she would when she was felt a, migraine coming on she would recite this poem to herself and she said in the letter and after a while it took on the virtue of a prayer and it was during one of these recitations as i told you before that christ himself came down and took possession of me so that kind of open engagement with with things is very foreign to you know academic uh culture in general but i think even political culture which which disallows what we can call the real from appearing, you know. So I and I, and, and I think also kind of could uh, disrupt like the scape, scapegoat mechanism, for instance, if we we were found a way to be in it, to inhabit that space. And I think that's what for me. That's what I, one of the things I've learned from Simone Weil, from William Blake, from from Ivan uh, Illich, from Northrop Fry from even from uh, Harold Bloom, who could be a little stubborn, you know, <laughs> is is they teach you how to read. Yes, that's very nice. But then that but that points to something, Michael, which you know is the paradox of Blake saying, "I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's." Right. Mm-hmm. So he he doesn't want to be enslaved but he you know it's ambivalent right yeah but, so but, i i said that I, when i was reading gerard i felt myself to be in the presence of a superior reader uh, as uh, and uh, as my acknowledged teacher uh, i mean throughout my life i followed ivan Illich's guidance let's say yeah right so there's always going to be a line there isn't there between being yourself, thinking for yourself, and recognizing what I need or the the view that can orient me, right? Uh, even if you want, why not say it? The system that can yeah. orient mm-hmm. me, right? It's uh, it's it's a fine it line is. that one that one learns to walk, right? And but um, it's a form of communion too. And if you're lucky, you you get a teacher who doesn't want followers. Exactly. <laughs> and I think Renee was one of those. Uh, he didn't him. want followers. He, okay, he got him. Sure, he got him, but he didn't uh-huh. want him. And a uh-huh. lot of his followers 
didn't want to be followers in that sense either, I think. Right? Yeah. That is, I mean, it, nobody is more penetrating than Gerard on the dynamics of the of the teacher and student who become rivals at some point. Yeah. The student wants to replace the teacher. And that's a, a great saying of Gerard's that what is you know the central statement of the gospel in a way is imitate the one who's not going to imitate you back mm -hmm. right Im imitate the one who doesn't want to imitate you um it's so i think Ellis and Gerard were, were both in that way teachers who didn't want yeah. followers yeah. Uh, uh and but it was it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty obvious with ivan but, you know, uh, you know, so we didn't threaten each other in any way. Fascinating. You know, I think the I don't know if it actually relates, but the the phrase, you know, do not know, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, I've kind of taken that for my own life is this image that you could be building something. You know, Blake was working on the four, the four Zoas and apparently he just couldn't hold together. So he left it as an unfinished masterpiece, you know, and then moves on to Jerusalem. But I have a feeling that you know all three of the people we've talked about Illich, blake and gerard could uh at the, at the last minute tear down that other thing or at least have a sense of humor about it you know and move on one of my favorite heroes is a good friend a roman catholic priest is quite brilliant he'll look at some of his friends and he'll say oh that guy he never had the common sense to lose a following right he see he sees one of his friends caught up in the one book they wrote when they were 20 you know and then yeah. keep on working that thing and he hadn't he never had the common sense to shake a following you know, yeah. the great teachers know how to, and I think Illich knew how to shake a following. Um, Michael brought yeah. up Simone Vey, you know, and I like how all these names are kind of like bringing in, not moving from one to the other, but different strands and a loom and so forth. But uh, so, David, that was the second, apart from your first one on, uh, I guess, part moon, part traveling salesman. Um, and then I got the book, uh, Ivan Illich in Conversation. I had bought as audio cassettes, you know, your series Enlightened by Love on Simone Weil. And that was so obviously a labor of love. There was one, I'll never forget even the voice intonation. And I'm forgetting the name. It had it was a Greek name, a Greek scholar on Simone Weil, who I think was dying. Oh, Diogenes. Yeah, he was dying. Yeah, Diogen yeah. Diogenes Allen was his name. Yeah, and he was talking about suffering, you know, and how sometimes yeah. all you can yeah. do is say hopomone, you know, patient endurance. Patient yes. dessert. Tell That's tell so nice. tell people. Uh, you know what were your main takeaways from that deep dive into into another figure that we all you know many people have read. She's hard to master. She's elusive. Um, what what were your main takeaways from this deep engagement with Simone? Well, probably. Uh, well, I was aware of Vey through most of my life uh, because of the endorsement of. T.S. Eliot, who was very important to me as a poet yeah, yeah. when I was young, and later a Canadian philosopher, not well known outside of Canada, George Grant, hmm. who also uh, acknowledged Bay as a novel type of modern saint, hmm. yeah. as Eliot had also said that this was a, a new type of sanctity we were seeing. Mm -hmm. in, in Simone Bay. Um, so I probably began to read her more carefully uh, when I was preparing to do some interviews with George Grant. Uh, 
But I would say, um, I'll take one crucial sentence. She says that she says uh, in, in a letter to Father Perrin, who was her interlocutor during the time she was in Marseille, um, that her place is at the intersection of Christianity and everything that is not Christianity. Mm. That is, she is she is transfixed on the threshold of the church. Yeah, she cannot move. She is pinned there. She, if you want, she's crucified there, uh, and she won't let go of of what she understands. And I thought, I mean, I'm not claiming any likeness to this remarkable lady, but that's where I felt I had spent my life, mm -hmm. right? That I had never left Christianity, uh, nor did I have any idea how, for example, to pass it on to my children as, as, a, as, as a dogmatic or, or doctrinal system. And I hope to make it up to them. I, I, in a, cer a certain way, I still have something to say to them on this score. But, you know, I couldn't, in other words, I couldn't belong to the kind of congregation where they would have been enculturated in Christianity as I was up to my tip of my. What was your, what was your upbringing, David? It was deep, deep Anglican. Uh, several of my forebears in Toronto were, were uh, Anglican priests. One, my great grandfather, uh, whose portrait is in my living room was professor of theology actually at Trinity College here. Mm -hmm. Um, and my grandfather was a, a pillar of the church, but I have no idea what he actually thought. <laughs> I think his, That's great. His, his horizon was darkened in a way I, I, I still hold by the First World War, where he was badly wounded and, you know, shrapnel holes where did um, he serve uh, uh, uh in in uh, in belgium in, okay. in flanders mm -hmm. um uh he was wounded and, and left behind german lines and was in a german prison hospital until a year after the war he finally got back to toronto wow but i how he how that hell related to what went on at St. Simon's Church for him. I never understood it. I, I wondered if it was impossible to integrate it, uh, that he, he, he held as well as he could to ancestral loyalties. And indeed we, we fought when I was young and brash and he was old uh, about the British empire. Mm. That Roosevelt was pushing the British too hard to dismantle the empire, and all the troubles of the world had come from the premature dismantling of the British Empire. We'll have to talk about uh, John Milbank in the next, right, Mike? So, yeah. So, so you know, this 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 takes this goes back a long yeah. way. But I, I, that is, I'm trying to tell you my milieu. Yeah. You know, my my grandfather, whom I adored, um, 
was an, an empire nationalist, uh, a, a Canadian who would have considered himself his primary identity to be British. Hmm. Uh, so I was steeped in that uh, Anglican Christianity in, in such a way that, which what I said, I couldn't do that to my children, right? That, mm -hmm. that I, this, I belong to it before I belong to myself mm -hmm. in any conscious way. And, and so it, it's simply part of me, right? Um, and in a certain way, my life, my work, what it's been about, comes out of that. Yeah. The Let's attempt to, to understand, to understand and to regain, regenerate. I like your word. Yeah. <laughs> you can see uh, <laughs> that heritage, right? To carry yeah. it forward. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, election is tremendously important in that respect, in, in this insistence that tradition and innovation can only be considered as a as a tightly bound couplet there each each defines the other at any given moment and and what that might mean is harder to say in a given context right For but sure. he also insists that the new church will be the old church reborn it won't be the old church overcome mm -hmm. uh, if you can put it like that in New so, Jerusalem. Anyway, so yeah, that I was I was steeped in that Anglican Christianity, and you know, I I would say the first book that really gave me orientation and introduced me to Dietrich Bonhoeffer was Bishop Robinson's book Honest to God, which sure. was a kind of bestseller in 1964, a, a, a work of popularization where he made Tillich and Bonhoeffer and others and known to a wider audience. Um, and I began to read Bonhoeffer and I think that that was the beginning of a hope yeah. uh, for me. Now there's, there's so lots they, of great- now they, they, they really advanced that for me as I read my way into her work. And, and I think it posed dilemmas, contradictions that I'm still chewing on because I don't know how Illich was oriented to they, but he, um, uh, he, he didn't, he didn't, there's something, there was some antipathy. One yeah. day, one day he was, um, his very close friend and, and mine, Lee Hoynatsky, uh, who was a kind of, I sometimes say that he was kind of Sancho Panza. To Whenever I mention his Hoynatsky. name, I say Lee Hoynatsky, so it's Hoynatsky. Hoynatsky. He said it Hoynatsky, but yeah. it's a strange Polish orthography. Sure, where sure. It, you don't write it the way you say it. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> but uh, he, he had a, there was a book with a picture of Vey on the table and Ivan pushed it away and he said really that's a great anecdote she, she reminds me of my mother he said ah, that's <laughs> it. that was my experience and, and i was and, uh, go on no and I, that was my so i read her i had a tutorial on christian existentialism as an undergrad 
And I loved her, but after the after maybe a couple of years later, those books so intimidated me on the bookshelf that I, I sold them to a book used bookstore. And then 15 years later, I need those books back <laughs> because she's intimidating. She is well, intimidating. Yeah, it could be various reasons for it. I mean, Ivan preached a, a hedonistic asceticism, mm -hmm. uh, which was quite which is obviously just a contradiction. Yeah. Um, uh, but nevertheless, he did preach a hedonistic asceticism. And, and uh, maybe Vey was a little uh, too uh, masochistic for his team. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I Hard see. to know. But the, the, rate, the main thing where they were, I would say, I don't know how to put them together, is that Vey is a Platonist. And Vey insists... Um, on two points that are both really crucial for me. One is that although the incarnation may be taken as an exemplary event and as perhaps the fully most fully realized or fleshed out instance of something, it must necessarily be an instance of something that is at all times and in all places available to people. Otherwise, one could not forgive god mm -hmm. yeah. uh this this did not make sense to her that there was a special people and indeed people thought her anti-semitic uh for for rejecting um, i wonder if that was part of the illich brush off you know well it it may well have been that, yeah. that he that she, he felt she was a little humorless in her attacks on she was humorless let's all agree but on I that mean, completely but, you know, devoid you, of humor but you read it you know you know it's very hard to read right yeah that not only must every last shred of the amalekites be destroyed but even their livestock mm -hmm. has to be destroyed yeah this is how hateful these other peoples are right mm -hmm. you you read the story of abraham right so this makes a conversation between Simone Weil and William Blake fascinating, right? In a, in a way quite different than people who say, oh, there must be an interior meaning for that. You know, Blake rose above that whole kind of dialectic, you know, the way he looked at the Bible just so effortlessly as, again, kind of, he didn't use this language, but explaining, you know, man's ways to God uh, as opposed to God's ways to man, yes. I think. Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. had all these different you know, phases and so forth. Fascinating. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that, and that, that's, that's the other point in Vey that, that um, was very important to me is that she, she says that uh, Christians ought to have been more tactful. I can put it like that about the resurrection, right? That the resurrection must not be allowed to obscure the crucifixion as the central element in the story. Do you agree with that or no? Like I, I know that's part of hers, and I would flip the script a little bit. You know, I, I would I would say yes, I do agree with her okay. in, in the sense that what I tried to say about Illich in, in my book when I, I tentatively put forward the idea that he has a tragic view of Christianity, right, is that this is going to go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. 
is it is it bound to go wrong? Do you remember in in the Illich book? And I, I this is in the Rivers North of the Future, but mm -hmm. and I've told told the story. But I, he at a certain moment when he was explaining his understanding of the gospel, very first chapter of the book, he says, "I can't go on without saying what I've resisted." or avoided saying for 30 years, which was one, one kind of, it's very, how does he say it? That one, well, he, one he goes to into the antichrist. One has right. to face the temptation to curse the incarnation. Right, right. He doesn't curse the incarnation, but he says that he can't go on without bringing up the temptation yeah. to do so. What is that? He's he's dramatizing something that is present in the original event, which is going to produce the world that we live in, and that we can barely. Do you think? Do you think that like, and I'm not trying to force these things between, say, Blake, Simone Veil, or Illich, none of them, but the, you know, Blake is so clear that the incarnation was going to lead to. I forget his word, the coagulation, a constellation, you know, the congealing of evil so it could finally be cast out. Now, remember when Illich said he yeah. tried to name the modern era as the name of disabling profession so you could cast it out like a demon. Well, yeah, yes. And well, so it's... that, you know, you see Illich again, like, you know, that it was going to lead to this. I think Illich saw clearly, but what we're seeing in our time, you know, I think we're, especially next week, we're going to talk more about this, this kind of like, you know, maniacal warfare and this mass psychosis. Blake saw that it had to be congealed so it could be cast out. Michael, you're saying something. Well, well, Blake, yeah. you know, prisons are built with the stones of law, brothels with the bricks of religion, right? Um, so I've been actually thinking lately, you know, reading a lot of uh, Illich lately, thinking about Blake. Um, and, you know, Illich likes this word vernacular. He does. And I'm thinking, you know, but I think he, I don't think he ever talked about it, but it made me start thinking about uh, vernacular sacraments. You know, yeah. how, you know, where, uh, and maybe, so for instance, so, so I don't know if David knows this. So in the past couple of years, I got so disappointed in the institutional church that we started doing house church. With my with my wife and the four kids still at home, and which has been very nourishing and and interesting, though it's gotten me into gotten me into some hot water with some more ecclesiastical friends. But I think I think of this as uh, in in celebrating the Christian festivals as we do is more vernacular expressions of of Christianity rather than institutional expressions you know and i remember thinking when when the the bishops were closing all the churches from coat for covid and then some churches in australia and you know, i think in canada were saying uh parishioners who are fully vaccinated may come to confession oh, <laughs> yeah. like, you know i'm like all right i'm done uh you know so perhaps the time has come for for this to be something we, we take more seriously. And I think Blake was talking about that in that, that, that statement I just gave. And I think maybe that's what 
Illich was getting at with his with his statement about uh, the, the temptation to curse the incarnation <laughs> because it created the structure. Well, it, it indirectly yes. created the structure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so to go back to Vey, then uh, what all she's saying is, you know, Christianity seemingly in possession of the resurrection, right? That the answer, right? That the whole thing had just been a setup, mm-hmm. right? Just a, a way of getting to the resurrection. Now we've got it. We have the good news. All we need now, I think Faye says, is, is to design the pedagogical program to which the whole world hmm. will become subject. Well, you know, we, we did. We, it was kind of what happened. And, yeah. you know, and, and it's, 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 it's patent in Canada, and the same in the States, really, but in, in the residential schools, which are more of an issue for us here, right? Which to which the Indian yeah. indigenous people were sent um, and abused there. So, um, so that's important to me in Bay, is that she asks for a completely different reception uh, of the gospel and of mm-hmm. the incarnation which I think is, it, it moves in the right direction. I do too. Uh, wow. It moves in the direction I, I hope to go in. How about this? Is this an okay place to segue, guys? You know, I think, you know, moments ago, you, you've not even segue, but segue into next week. You know, you had mentioned, um, you know, we're, we're doing this work this week of reclaiming, you know, and talking about regeneration, but also, you know, David, moments ago, you mentioned about a new church reborn Michael very seminally talking about, you know, house church. And I hadn't heard you use that word, but I know an essay is coming vernacular sacraments. <laughs> it makes me think of, a you know, the tagline I use for, um, for some of this is the line from Coventry Patmore. Again, I think he's a radical because he, he hides behind a name that sounds like a doily that sits next to your old grandmother's <laughs> Davenport. But he said, you know, the Eucharist was a meal so that every meal might become a Eucharist. Right. Um, and uh, so let's, uh, you know, let's, uh, we'll pull today to a close, you know, any final words, David, you know, I want to mention again, Ivan Illich, an intellectual biography from Penn State University Press, you can find it online. Do I have your website correct by saying it's just davidkayley.com? That's all it is. You know, okay. I encourage people to, uh, to read, you know, I was glad you revisited uh, the Gaia thing. We'll talk more about that. But mm-hmm. on his blog, read as many of those as you can, you know, prior to next week, especially the one where he's engaging with these great European thinkers on, you know, Ivan Illich on life, life, so seminal. So is it okay if we'll see each other next week, friends? It's great. Yes. All right. Thanks for signing into the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.